Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nika Anani and I am your host. Here on The Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses. How you can build businesses and wealth that would outlive a founder and have sustained impact, not only over time, but also over space. And we have these conversations inviting guests from all over the world, both business owners themselves on their legacy journey, as well as expert teachers. And we have these conversations in an environment of authenticity, curiosity and vulnerability. This week, I had an incredible guest, Ryan Margolin, who's a business leader and entrepreneur. And he is, he works, his company is called Professional Hair Labs, which he runs with his brother's and helped make it one of the top businesses in the industry. I found this story just absolutely fascinating. There was a lot of transition, transition from Ryan being on the on the sidelines and coming into the business, the business evolving and transitioning from being founder-led to siblings-led. Um, also, he oversaw a lot of growth of the business um, through... Um, a lot of branding and marketing activities that led to phenomenal growth in sales and also expanded the product line quite significantly. So I really, really love this conversation. And so um, tune in and enjoy. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to The Connected Generation. It's awesome to have you. No, thanks, Nikkei. I appreciate it. And I'm uh, looking forward to having a chat. Right, so am I. I'm looking forward to learning more about your journey, um, your passions, and, and, and that. So you're the CEO of Professional Hair Labs. Can you tell us, before we dive into all of that, I'm really curious about your journey getting to where you are today. What was the backstory? Sure. So uh, Professional Hair Labs were a manufacturer of cosmetic uh, products. We started in the non-surgical hair replacement niche and... Um, we, you know, the sole aim of the company was to create a safe and effective solution for hair technicians and also individuals who wore hair pieces or wigs. Um, mm-hmm. When we successfully achieved that and we created a, a, a global renowned brand, uh, we wanted to apply those same principles and methodologies to, a, you know, a wider cosmetic uh, area. So that's what we did. We expanded our manufacturing mm-hmm. capabilities and formulation capabilities. So. Um, all of that kind of was predicated around uh, my journey into the role as, as CEO, which stems back many years. My, my mother and father both own their own business, and I grew up in the hair industry, so uh, I was quite privy to a lot of the workings of it at the time. And um, my background was kind of sales and marketing, and most of the jobs that I had up until the point where I joined the company was in those areas. Uh, 2009, when the economic crash happened, um, kind of pushed me in a position to reevaluate where we were at and myself and my wife. And we had one daughter at the time. And my dad had the company Professional Hair Labs and it wasn't really performing the way he wanted it to. And he said, look, there's an opportunity to, to come to Florida and have a look at the company, see what you think and see, is there any changes that, you know, you, you might make and, you know, see if we can grow the company. So I was like, you know, what? after some thought, uh, we decided well, what's the worst that can happen. So we, we took the jump and we moved and we stayed there for a year and a half. And I spent the first Where six did months you move from? Sorry. from Ireland. Sorry. Uh, with myself and my wife and my daughter were living in Ireland and um, my mother's Irish. So that's where the connection oh, is. Wow. 
And what happened then was uh, for six months I was there, spent a lot of time learning about the business um, because it was in a different side of the industry that I had grown up in. I learned about the workings, uh, kind of analyzed the the inner workings of the company and we kind of paired everything back and we rebranded the company from its logo to its products, to the message, to the website, to everything to do with marketing. And we made some really simple changes, uh, which ended up allowing us to be in a position to triple revenue in 18 months. So wow. that aligned really well with, um, with a product that we already had on hand, the base formula. Um, the only thing we were missing was the technology to give it that ultimate performance that we wanted or were waiting for. And when that came about, we then launched a, a brand called Ghost Bond, which is now the industry-leading brand uh, in the hair replacement industry. And that's kind of just led to where we are today. Um, it's allowed us to open our European location, which is now really our principal manufacturing location. And we've been able to expand the brand globally uh, through through the means of, of, that, um, of that product. Incredible. I have so many questions. First thing that came to mind was, was the business started in Ireland or was it started in Florida? It was started in Florida in 1994. And right. what happened was from 94 up until 2009 or 2010, should I say, it, it was kind of stagnant. The, it, it operated with about two hundred fifty dollars to $275,000 a year. And from 2010 mm-hmm. onwards, when we made these changes, it started growing exponentially year on year between six and seven into eight figures. And um, look, we have no plans of stopping, but it, it's been a huge uh, learning curve the whole way through. Wow. And, and you made a lot of transition, um, you know, moving from Ireland to the business, now working closely with your dad. Can you share more about that? Yeah. So the, I suppose the beauty about it now is that the, the the company has kind of moved into the next generation. So it's myself and my two brothers who who own the company. Now my dad has transitioned out and he remains um, as an advisor kind of at board level. So right. it, um, it it is very helpful because you know what, no matter who you are, the experience you have, there's always a different perspective that that, that can be given to you on many different topics and you need those people around you as well. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's, you know, the, the movement from, say, the U.S. to holding the place there to opening up in, in Ireland and then realizing, you know, there's other opportunities uh, to restructure the company, not only from a tax uh, you know benefit, but from an operational perspective as well. Uh, it, it, it's been a real uh, eye opener over the last decade, uh, and we've learned an awful lot. You, you, you kind of have to evolve yourself as an individual in order to put yourself in the right headspace to, to deal with the challenges. But you have to make the decision to want to do it. You know, that that's really where it starts. Mm. You know, I observed in the introduction, a lot of what you were saying, it was, we did this, we did that. We, and I wrote that down and I was like, it's interesting. You seem to have a lot of emotional ownership beyond just feeling like a spectator. Cause quite often, um, generation two, if mom or dad is still heavily in the business, they will refer to mom and dad's business, right? Um, yeah. There's a bit more detachment there. Um, so I'm really curious about this evolution from when dad was very active in the business to now yourself and your brother are the owners moving into the sibling partnership. What was that journey like? Difficult. <laughs> it was it was challenging. Uh, <laughs> but I think at the core uh, of it all, 
Um, I think that as a collective, we're um, highly understanding and empathetic individuals. And I think if you lack that, I think it's going to be very difficult to find a solution that's going to benefit the company ultimately, because I think as human beings, naturally, our first instinct is to go against the grain of anything that makes us uncomfortable or that we don't believe is the right move. But having the ability to communicate and uh, and and find a common ground for the benefit of the the company itself, because it's not just yourself that's relying on it. It's the individuals who are part of the team as well. And without all right. of it, um, people don't have jobs. Um, there's no livelihood. There's no income. And you know, if you break it down to a purpose, there's no purpose either. So it's mm. uh, I, I think that journey for us took us quite a quite a few years to actually get over the line, but. Uh, I don't think it would have been possible without all of us really um, ultimately having each other's back and, and wanting the best for each other and for the company. Mm-hmm. I really hear that. Um, like I said, I noticed the we, we, we. So there's a very much collective orientation towards mm-hmm. the way you see the business and you see your family. Um not many people, not many um, family businesses are able to make that transition successfully where dad transitions from monarch to, to mentor. Um, so tell us more about that, how he was able to take a step back and just be an advisor and allowed for yourself and your brother to kind of um, lead yeah. the business. I, I think it was a natural progression. And, you know, I can only kind of speak from our experience. But as we started to grow and new challenges started to be put in front of us, and obviously my dad is 80 now, um, you know, so like mm. he, he he's moving on in age. I, I think the realization of, um, you know, the the required time commitment and energy um, was just a little bit more than than was realistic that that that, that he could contribute. And to be fair to him, um, you know, I think he did everything that he did at exactly the right time because uh, mm-hmm. it allowed us the space to grow as individuals. And it allowed us the ability that if we were facing a situation and there were many of them where we were really unsure of ourselves and about where we needed to be there was at least another opinion there that we could lean on or get some insight from. Uh, so it, it's, you know, look, I think just as much as the commitment we made and the energy we put forward to, to helping the business move forward, I think his sounding board decisions along the way have helped us clear the way to, you know, to allow us to move forward. So um, mm. it's been a fairly smooth transition, you know, from him moving right. to running the business to being an advisor. That's really great. Um, And you mentioned that um, when you did move to the US and you then did a lot of rebranding of the company, tell us more about that. So you you mentioned that sales and marketing was your specialty. Yeah. Yeah, in your former life. So tell us more about that, because I feel like this is an area that a lot of family businesses can be stronger on, to be frank. They can be, but I my my belief is that as 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 human beings we tend to overcomplicate things too um and i think we look for answers in in situations that might be just a little bit more complex than they need to be so you know when when i was looking for example uh, from, i'll speak from my perspective when i when i was looking at the company when i first uh, entered it in in 2009 um, I looked at a couple of key things. I looked at, you know, what is the sales processes like? How are customers being handled? And how is our marketing uh, happening? And what I realized is that th- there wasn't a whole lot of it going on. So uh, right. in between the time I was learning about the intricacies of how the, the business was functioning and 
doing a little bit of research online about the the market. I was also building in alignment with that. I was building uh, an Excel sheet manually. It took me three months of 5,000 hair replacement studios uh, in the U.S. alone. So that, but while I was doing that, it gave me, uh, and I was fortunate because I had the time to spend on it. You know, I had just entered the company. I didn't really know where my position was going to be. Um, so I just took advantage of the time I had. And after the three months, we had this database there. So the next thing we did was that, you know what, we could go all in online, you know, advertise, you know, with Google, um, you know, we, you know, we could invest heavily in SEO, which we did, uh, ourselves, um, but there, you know, the SEO game is a long-term game. It's like, we want to try to make yeah. an impact now. So, you know, the simple thing we did is we did a direct mail campaign. We did a back and front postcard, the front being the product and the benefits and the back being testimonials from industry leaders uh, who had a chance to use the product before we launched it. And there, we only had a team of three at that point. So it was really, uh, it was very small. And we, um, we didn't want to send out all 5,000 at the same time because on the off chance that we were inundated with calls, we wouldn't be able to take them. So we split it up into three batches and sent it out. And we started getting phone calls immediately. Uh, yeah, can I order one bottle to try it? No problem. Uh, that one bottle turned into five bottles on the next order to 20 bottles to 25 bottles. And then you multiply that, you know, by a thousand customers eventually, um, that's a lot of money, you know, and, and a lot of, uh, a lot of increase in the customer base. So we realized we validated the product with a really simple strategy. And, uh, that's why I, I always believe is that, you know, direct mail campaigns are never dead. I think they are not something to be solely relied upon, but I do think that they're a core piece of a marketing strategy that needs to be paid attention to at all times. Because, um, look at the end of the day, uh, people's, timelines are so busy with advertisements uh on all social media platforms um it's Mm. it's very rare you get something in the mail that that really sticks out to you that's not enclosed in an envelope you know and that's i think Mm. that why we will always continue to um to focus on that part of it because it's it, it is a portion of what ultimately helps your brand awareness but can convert to sales so um another key point is you know look you know, there's third-party platforms that that sell your product, and they hold very closely their their information. Um, so you have to be a little bit intelligent. It's like, okay, well, look, you're not going to get their email addresses to you know to to continue to market to them if they if they allow you to do so. So what's the next best thing you can do? Um, mm-hmm. You can build your your mailing list database from these platforms and do a direct mail campaign to them. You might only convert one or two percent to them. But if you've got, you know, if you're selling 800, five to 800 units a day of a product, you've got 800 different mailing addresses, that uh, that percentage increases your customer base again, even if you converted a very low percent. So um, right. you have to be a little bit more clever about how you reach people and, 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 and um, put your product in front of them if you know it provides a solution. It's interesting you, you mentioned offline, online, and your observation on online is a bit cluttered for the user there's so much stuff that we're seeing right but quite often i find that a lot of advisors do push for online kind of visibility branding sales and marketing but here you are going back to the ancient days (laughs) of like 
send yeah. folks something, right? People like a gift. And but when I open my mail and I see all these catalogs, it literally goes, sorry, it goes straight into the trash. Yeah. What can folks send? Like, give us ideas. Well, let me ask you a question. You get a catalog and you put it straight in the trash. But what if that wasn't right. a catalog? But what if that was just a simple postcard? Fits in your hand. What are you going to do? You're going to look at it this way. You're going to flip it over, look at it that way. Then you might put it in the trash. But at least you've got full visibility of the item right there you know it's not so it's not a catalog you've got to open up flick through wonder what it's right. about what's in it it's really direct and to the point and then you have the decision very quickly within five seconds whether you're going to throw it out or put it on the counter and actually take a look at it later so that's that that's the whole you know that's my whole thought process behind it um i'm a huge advocate of online marketing i mean look we do it as well and we have mm-hmm. influencers and brand ambassadors but it's not everything and um, I do realize in this day and age, it probably makes up the lion's share of what ultimately becomes the building of your customer base and revenue. But just don't discount the stuff that's worked for many, many years prior to that. Right. Because, right. you know, look, it's still it's still relevant. Mm. Very much so. And I'm intrigued. You mentioned that after you moved into the company and you rebranded, the business grew super fast in 18 months. It was 3X. Yeah. And that... I mean, as a business owner, um, a part of me is like, oh my God, that's incredible. And a part of me literally is like, my heart sinks because I I know the complexities that come with rapid growth. Absolutely. So can you share more about that? So the first things to, so we we, like, in in my opinion, when you're operating within six figures, it's, it's about, um, it's about systems. And then, you know, the systems turn into uh, relationships and systems. And then when all of that, uh, grows past the seven figure mark, it becomes about you as a leader. So uh, the systems were the first thing to break in our business. When we passed six to seven figures, our communication channels broke. Um, you know, we were, you know, there was more queries coming in than our resources uh, internally. And from a, a digital perspective, we're able to handle. So you have to go back and revise all of that. Um When we moved into the seven figure space, then uh, we realized that there was a lot of structural uh, changes that were required to make sure that we were serving our customers at the highest level. So we ended up uh, hiring consultants, a couple of consultants to work with. And those consultants remained with us, uh, which, you know, we still have good relationships with. Um, but as you grow into, you know, in, in your journey, certain consultants and people, service providers that you work with can only bring you to, to a certain level before becomes a little stagnant and it doesn't work anymore. Um, so we ended up having to change again into eight figures. Now we kept uh, one of the consultants we worked with from the seven figures joined us in the journey in eight figures because there was still a lot of value that that could be pulled there. But then the company started to transition. Um, we realized that, you know, look, we were operating two separate um, locations in Ireland and in the U.S., although it was running for the same purpose. Um, but we weren't being as, you know, we weren't building any type of strategic value inside of the company and we weren't operating as tax efficiently as we possibly could. Uh, cause naturally any tax savings that, that we can make inside the company ultimately get redirected right back into the growth. Um, and I mm. think that's grown in our company over the last five years with, with what we've been able to do. Um, but you know, look, I, I think as, um, I think as a leader of a company, whether it's a CEO, a COO, vice president, whatever it may be. Uh, I think you need to really take a look in the mirror first at yourself because ultimately the the changes have to start there. And if you're not doing that, then it's going to be a very difficult journey. What do you mean by that? 
um, so, start with yourself. The changes start yeah. now. So you have to look at yourself as, you know, as, okay, well, what are some of my beliefs, uh, you know, in terms of running a business? I mean, that that's really where I started. It's like, okay, look, you know, we're running a high six-figure company. Uh, my beliefs might be is that, look, I, I firmly believe that there's no one that can do it as good as me. And I firmly believe that if I let go of any of the responsibility, high-level responsibility in the company, uh, it's all going to fall apart, right? So what do you do? You, mm. become the, you become the bottleneck, right? You become the reason it doesn't grow. Right. You see a little bit of plateauing on the growth over a series of three or four or five months, and you have to really just look at yourself in the mirror again and ask the question. So um, at that point, then you have to realize that there are people out there who can do it just as good and better than you. And those are the people you need on the team. So let's move into the seven figures. So you start to build that team around. And then you realize you've got strong personalities on the team who really know what they're doing. And they really have something to contribute. And they have, in some in some cases, a different perspective than you do. So you really have to challenge your limiting beliefs and your comfortability of, of letting go of control and allowing these individuals who are contributing to do the job for the company that will allow it to grow. So essentially you have to get out of their way and start leading a little bit. And when that happens, you allow them to build teams underneath them, right? And that starts to become uh, a situation in your company where culture is uh, is something that's paid very close attention to. Right. And then when you move into the eight-figure space, that's where your leadership needs to be um, at, a, at an extremely strong point because if not, the culture from the top and the way it's created starts to um, starts to filter down. And mm-hmm. I, me personally, I don't like a company where it's from the top down. I like it where it's from the ground up. And right. that that was one of the biggest learning curves for me. It was like, okay, what can I do to make everyone feel comfortable? But it's like, no, it start it started from the ground up. It's like let everyone be who they are, and let's guide that, nurture it, and challenge their thought processes to become, become better at what they do. And, mm-hmm. and I think naturally as time went on, you know, we built a team, uh, we've had our challenges with it, but I think, you know, as a company, we've really gotten there. Um, you know, look, I mean, I can safely say we literally have to force our team members to take holidays because wow. they just love coming in. And, you know, we, we stay out of each other's way. We have our meetings, we have our set tasks that we need to do and we know what we need to do. And, as long as everyone is doing them, it's a really enjoyable place to be um, because, you know, we're, we're, we're making a difference. Our, our products are not just a cosmetic that are going on a skin, uh, going on the skin. They're, they're, they're products that are providing a solution for individuals who have experienced hair loss uh, that has impacted not only their mental health, but just their, their general self-confidence. And um, we, we try to instill in everyone at the team. It doesn't matter if, you know, you're running the machine that's putting the product into the bottles or whether you're sending out a, a marketing campaign, everything you do matters from the ground up. Right. Everything you do is just as important. It's just as important as the marketing that arrives in someone's inbox as the product that arrives to them in the mail and their experience when they open it and use it. So it's it's not um, everything is in alignment. It, it's you know what you you know how you do one thing is how you do everything, and, and as long as right. we keep that in place. Uh, it, it served us very well, you know, and I know there's other companies that might not apply to, or somebody might listen to that and be like, they don't agree with it. That's okay. But for us, that's what's worked. Mm. Powerful. Um, really articulating the purpose and allowing for different members of the tribe to understand how 
they fit into the bigger picture. Um, I'm intrigued about, you know, like you said, you, you prefer businesses that, you know, from the ground up rather than top down. How do you manage during tough times? For instance, you mentioned the business went through the 09 crash, um, through COVID-19, through right now we're in choppy waters. How do you maintain um, the morale and keep, right, you're nodding profusely, so you know exactly where I'm going with this. Like, how do you keep the team members and yourself even? Yeah, you've hit all the key points there. I mean, in 2009, to be honest, with, with the crash, the company was small enough to where it wasn't really impacted. The customer base wasn't huge. 25K a month, um, you know, in, in, in the hair industry is, is you, you could do that overnight now. You know, there, there's not a there's not a big challenge. But um, the, I think that the, the point of where it was an oh moment for us was was when COVID hit. Um, you know, in the U.S., we were fine. We're in Florida. So it was kind of left to the company's decision is how they wanted to operate. And to be honest, there was essentially no company shutting down. So we took our safety precautions and we kept going there. Um, and the employees, were, you know, and the team were happy to do so. Uh, over here, it was a different story. So uh, the whole of Ireland shut down for three months and any company who was not deemed an essential service was uh, was due to shut down. It was instructed to shut down. So we were thinking to ourselves, okay, we have a bit of a challenge here. We're not a, an essential company. So what can we do? So we got together as a team. Within 24 hours, we decided, okay, we've got manufacturing equipment. We've got raw material. We've got alcohol. Let's manufacture hand sanitizer. So the team within 24 hours put together a formula. We got everything up and going. And within a week after that, we were, well, sorry, within 24 hours, we were deemed an essential service. And within a week after that, we started to build new partnerships in the sanitizer space because we had never operated within it before. And we were able to sell a ton of product during that time because there was a shortage. But it allowed us to keep our doors open, keep everyone in a job. And it also allowed us to, you know, do something constructive. So uh, the time during COVID for us um, was, uh, it was challenging, but um, when we came out of COVID uh, after, you know, after a few months of things started to open up, we saw some of our biggest uh, growth that we had experienced in the company. But naturally now we're in a different climate, brings on a lot of different challenges, uh, energy crisis, uh, you know, cost right. of fuel. Uh, we're a manufacturer, right. so our energy costs have shot up dramatically. Um Strategically, we have been okay to the point where we haven't had to increase our prices or pass them on. And I think that comes down to part of the leadership being strong in negotiation. So we've been able to, uh, we've been able to do deals with our partners. Whereas, you know, let's say, look, for example, um, you know, there were times where we would uh, buy some of our plastics or our bottles, say from China. Um, logistics, a container might have usually cost us six to seven thousand dollars. They, they, they started, they went up to between seventeen and $21,000, right? So naturally, the quickest way around that is to find another method of transport, which, you know, uh, from China was uh, the freight train through Turkey into Europe, right? So negotiating different strategies with pricing quantities, uh, projections, uh, and then finding different means of transport has helped us a little bit. But uh, ultimately, things are starting to settle down a little bit now, and we're in a position where we've been able to do better deals with our raw material suppliers, where we've invested more 
uh, and therefore have uh, been able to stabilize our pricing. And naturally, we've been in position not to have to pass any increases on. So, yes, our energy costs have gone up. Uh, yes, fuel costs have gone up. Um, logistics costs have gone up, you know, for, for air freight and stuff like that. But uh, it's, it's you know, we've taken a hit on margin. But, you know, for our customers, they're getting the product same as they've always been able to. And although, you know, look, business has decreased slightly, slightly over the last, uh, say, few months because of the economic climate, People have less disposable income. Um, we're still doing everything in our power to put an affordable product and safe product in their hands. So that has been a challenge in itself. Mm, mm, I can only imagine. And I mean, flash forward to today, um, tell us more about like your product range. And you had mentioned a little bit about how it's not just something on the skin. It has a deeper meaning and purpose. Um, and share more about that. Sure. So... The whole reason the company was started in 94 was um, prior to that, my mother and father had hair replacement studios and my mother got chemical poisoning from the products that she was using over the years because the industry was never regulated. The FDA didn't deem it big enough to regulate. So manufacturers were uh, providing products with chemicals in them. And no matter how well the ventilation or the uh, safety and application, it still had a detrimental effect on certain technicians' health. Um, so that's where the mission and the core of the company started. The, my father sold the hair replacement, um, uh, studios and he started to work with a collective of chemists that helped them create a product line that was safe. And that's, that's kind of where everything started from. And that's where we, we still continue to hold that mission into everything that we do. So, um, it's been, yeah, it, look, it, it's been important to try to retain that, especially in, in a day and age where everyone is more attentive now than they have ever been uh, mm. to safety in products. You know, a lot of people like natural products, um, right. you know, they, they, you, know the, you, you have uh, vegan friendly products, you have um, all types of different, you know, uh, labels on, on products. And it really just comes down to, in my eyes, at the end of the day is like, you know, if you find a product that fits your lifestyle, that's great. But no matter what you do, safety should always be at the core of, of, of everything. And because our product is uh, our main product or most popular product, it's a bonding adhesive to, you know, to attach wigs to a scalp or, or you know, a hairpiece or a hair unit or a system to a scalp. Um, it's even more important that uh, the, the products are kept uh, safe. No? All good. No, no, you're good. So it's even it's even more important that the products are, you know, the, the, the safety aspect is adhered to because look, we've experienced a high level of counterfeiting of our brand and that that's taken a global impact on us, you know, where you know we've lost upwards of five million in sales per year just due to counterfeits, you know, that we know of. And and that's not even taking into account the countries that our product is in that we've never supplied to. So it's, uh, it, it's, you know, look, it, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of challenging, um, uh, there's a lot of challenging situations in front of us at the moment, but look, we're, we're doing okay. And I think, you know, you either have two choices, you either choose to succumb to the challenge and forget about it. And it's too hard to, to deal with, or you find a way around it. And option one that I just said is not an option. So, you know, you just got to oh. keep going. Hmm. Incredible. Ryan, I could literally, there's so much you said that I can, I can do a whole podcast episode on. I think there's like 10 sub episodes yeah, from this. Right. I've learned so much. Um, the piece on 
being conscious enough to check whether you are the bottleneck in your business for me is a huge one, a huge aha. And I guess my last question is, where does one get that self-awareness from? Because that requires a lot of self-awareness, right? To be able to be like, hold up, yeah. I'm the problem. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I, I think that the simplest way to do it, I, like it didn't work out like this for me, but in hindsight, in uh, reflecting on it, um, I fortunately had someone who was able to actually walk me to the water and help me drink it, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, so, like I had a consultant and, and an advisor there that was able to actually, you know, ask me the questions and tell me what the problem was. But I think, you know, looking back on, on the last, you know, say five years in particular, I think it's always a good idea that when you reach a plateau in your business, um, the first place you need to look is yourself because there's mm-hmm. something you're not doing right or you're not leading right or you're not putting, you know, the right decisions or mechanisms in place to help break past this this uh, slow uh, or this uh, reduction in growth. Um, I don't think there's ever been a time where it hasn't been a product of, 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 of my own. Uh, lack of understanding or, or, or mm. self-awareness um, because once I became aware of it um, and quickly made the changes uh, you you quickly see the difference so I suppose that's all part of the you know of human nature and 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 and, and growing as as, right. as an individual right right for sure incredible thank you so much for coming on if anyone would like to learn more about you and your business how can they um, get in touch uh my individual kind of where i hang out is linkedin uh, most of the time so i can always be found there but the company professional hair labs uh we have we're on all major social media platforms um, you know linkedin facebook uh tiktok uh, instagram or our website is prohairlabs.com so you know whether some of your audience might have a need for um working with a manufacturer in the cosmetic space or thinking about launching a brand, um, I would say at least talk to us, you know, before you mm. make any decisions, because if, even if you don't end up working with us, you'll leave the conversation with a lot more knowledge than you had before. Awesome. Thank you so much. No, no problem. I appreciate it. Nika, and it's been a, it's been a pleasure. I loved, loved, loved this conversation with Ryan and my fascination, um, guess, is around the generational transition. This transition from being founder-led, where his dad really um, passed on the baton to himself and his siblings, and how his dad moved from being boss to being a mentor, being an advisor to the board, and really embraced eldership. I find that um, in the world, in this world of legacy business, there's a lot of talk about preparing the next generation for the future of the business, for their roles, etc. But there's not enough conversation around preparing the now generation for their future roles as elders as well. And as elders, um, they typically play four roles, um, according to Jay Hughes, who is an industry giant and such a wonderful elder, frankly, in the family enterprise space. In his book, Family, the Compact Among Generations, he explains how critical elders are in the legacy journey. And they typically will play four roles. The first is as mediator. So resolving and mediating disputes in the family so that we can have family unity and family trust. And as I explained on my last solo episode on common sources of conflict in family firms, 
conflict is very common in family firms <laughs> um, for a host of reasons. And so we have to be very proactive in how are we, what's our process by which we will mediate conflict when it comes, um, because it will come, right? The second role elders typically play is this role of advisor that Ryan was kind of alluding to. So this is really steering the ship and, you know, these are the family values or or, or these are the family rules, Um this is what I would do if I was in your situation, really playing this role of a mentor that helps the rising generation to have their sense of autonomy and their voice, um, but also have someone to tap into that has that generational wisdom, that has that institutional knowledge and legacy, and has a well of wisdom from having been through a whole load of triumphs and trials, right? really, really invaluable um, role that they can play. The third role, Jay, highlights that often elders play is this role of storyteller. And, you know, telling the stories to the family to remind them of why we're in this, the origin story, where we're heading to, how we're heading there, you know, um, the importance of banding together, the importance of the community, for instance. By the way, these are not, you know, these are not necessarily the what elders should be saying, I'm just giving examples of how elders can play this role of storyteller, right? Um, the values in your family will differ, like every family's different, right? And the last is this role of rituals, maintaining and implementing ritual ceremonies in the family. And this really speaks to, if we think about transition and evolution, um, in our families, we're having new entrants into the family, whether it's new births or whether it's by marriage. What is the process in which we're welcoming in these new members? We're also having exits, unfortunately. We're having deaths. We're having divorces. What is the process through which we're maintaining and ma- keeping cohesion, keeping trust, keeping emotional support during those seasons, right? So elders can play a huge role in in anchoring that so yeah, th- th- I just wanted to share a bit more about that because I find that, like I mentioned, the industry is very much tilted and geared towards sorting out the next generation whilst really not thinking through how can we also assist the right the now generation with their evolution because there's a lot that they're grappling with as well. There's a lot of evolving, transitioning that the now generation are grappling with. And so if you'd like to learn more, I'd, reckon, I'd recommend that you get Jay Hughes' book family compact among generations as always thank you so much for tuning in take good care and god bless you